eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is the Skate Podcast, talking Bruins hockey with WEEI Bruins writers Scott McLaughlin, Bridget Prue, and Brian DeFelice. Lace them up for some bees talk. It's Odyssey's The Skate Pod on WEEI. Woo! Welcome into episode 218 of the Skate Podcast. I'm Brian DeFelice, joined by Bridget Prue, back from vacation, and Scott McLaughlin, fresh off of his Bruins top 100 list submission. Of course, the the list was released by the Bruins, not ranked, just the list of the top 100 Bruins. Um, Bridget and Scott, how are you guys doing today? I'm good. And Scott, and I want to add Brian fresh off getting a new mustache. <laughs> just, this, is, <laughs> this, is just, this is like a fake sports sports talk radio headline. Like, okay, so, so podcast off, have a off new the rant, so... Yeah, so Bridget Brian logs on to <laughs> before before the podcast, and Bridget's like, "Do you have a new mustache?" And I'm like, Brian's like, "No." Hey. I'm like, "It doesn't look that different to me." Yeah, I feel like Scott and I have kind of like a similar like facial hair thing going, honestly. And she didn't say it to Scott, but no, I mean, it's because you got a different mustache. I'm really concerned about what happened to Bridget over in Italy. Not, <laughs> not sure. Not sure. This is like old Bridget. I think something changed. Yeah. yeah. I sent well, someone she... else back because I didn't want to come yeah. back. Yeah. Well, she popped on. She was like, "Ciao." I was like, "What the fuck is she talking about?" <laughs> um, yeah, I, I actually did not pick up a lot of Italian, but yeah. So, yeah. so if, if you're watching on YouTube, weigh, weigh in on Brian's uh, mustache slash facial hair. Do Let us know if it looks tanner? different. Do I look tanner? Not really. Yes, yes. <laughs> Scott always say yes when somebody yes, asks. Of course. Mm-hmm. Um, you do look much tanner. Um, Thank you. And then, and then, yes, yeah, Scott. I mean, you. I, I gotta wonder. Like, you've probably just been practicing your dance moves because you have your sister's wedding coming up soon, right? And it's gonna be a little bit louder now, a little bit louder now, a little bit louder. You, like, you're gonna have to, you know, squat up and, and start dancing. Yeah. Well, and and I had one of my best friends' weddings last weekend, so I'm like right in, right in the mix of it here, back to back wedding weekends. So, yeah, getting getting uh, those dancing legs legs a workout. I love that. There's a lot of what, what's what's the most classic wedding song? Would you say? Would you say? I mean, there's shout. Obviously, I just kind of shouted that one out. No pun intended. I, then I, I think it's that. Like I yeah. think it's that one. I think it starts there. Starts there. I mean, um, you know, September by Earth, Wind, and Fire is obviously. I mean. Ooh. 
that's a, that, that's in every wedding i feel like um you guys are you guys a dj you, you you prefer a dj at a wedding or a live band um so i've definitely been to way more djs but my friends this past weekend had a live band i gotta say they were awesome like they, they I, it. I actually was not a part of this wedding but it happened on the beach that i was staying at in italy and it was a dj with a saxophonist playing over top of the music that was playing and it was actually really fucking good so i was like i was so impressed by this guy i don't know how he, he just randomly freestyled over every song it was it was crazy my my friend's also he's a very talented musician himself and uh actually wrote a song to debut at his wedding at the reception which i was like that's that's land? just like that's raising the bar for everyone like that, that's is. not fair yeah well i had oh i don't know if i should say this i went to my cousin's wedding last year and nobody knew that his fiance turned wife was gonna sing coming down the aisle <laughs> and i couldn't keep it together i couldn't get my my cousin was one of the bridesmaids on the on the altar and she's just trying to not laugh it was bad it was real bad she lives in tennessee she's not gonna hear this but um <laughs> Don't do that, Scott. You're I'm waiting. gonna send it to her. <laughs> Please don't sing down the aisle or at the altar. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the three of us are just kind of well versed in in weddings at this point. Uh, I think since 2019 or 18, I've been to. I mean, I, I think I've been to. I have two more to go to this year, and I think I, that'll be like 11 and 12 in like the last like three and a half years. It's just like, yeah, people like to get married in their late 20s, I guess, early 30s. Yeah, it, it's weird. Like I went through. I went through like a little bit of like a dead, probably right around where you were hitting that peak. Like I went through like a little bit of dead spot where it was like I had a bunch right before that. Then just like one a year for a couple of years. And like now all of a sudden this year, like packed again. Hmm. On my on my RSVP for the wedding I'm going to Friday, it said I got a plus one and it's and it said like I said I wasn't taking it. And it said, give a reason why you're not taking a plus one. And I wrote, I'm single AF. And I sent <laughs> it. I don't know. <laughs> Well, you could have taken Melvin, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, Melvin. He's, He's out cold. He's passed out. All right. I guess I guess at this point we'll we'll uh swing it swing it back around to, to Bruins and NHL news. So um right now over at Warrior Arena, we have Bruins rookie camp is going on this week. Next Wednesday, a week from tomorrow is or a week from today is uh training camp for uh the big the big club. And then in between that you have the rookie the rookie tournament in Buffalo, I think the showcase tournament. So uh, we got a, we got a centennial season Jersey reveal on, on Saturday, Bridget, little fashion segment. Uh, so that'll be, that'll be worthwhile. Um, and of course, like I mentioned off the top, we had the Bruins release their, their top 100 centennial players list. Uh, Scott played a part in that along with other writers and media members um, putting that list together. I don't know what the method was to, who, who was it? It had to have been some sort of computer generated thing, right, Scott? That put all the yeah. So, the, the way it works, I think there were, I want to say about 30 of us on the committee, and we all individually ranked one through 100 in order. And then I think they took all of our lists, players were like weighted by where we ranked them. So, like, if you're ranked one, you know, you got more points than if you're ranked 50, got more points than 100, etc um and then they compiled it all together to come up with the the final hundred the historic 100 as they called it 
Um, yeah, and I'm, and you know, I'm, a, I'm sure there were a lot of obvious unanimous ones, but then you get to a certain point where it's, you know, very much up in the air. I'm sure there were some, some close misses. Um, ultimately, I had 93 of the hundred on my list. Um, I posted something on wei.com about where I had some differences. The basically the you know the seven guys I didn't have on that made it, and the seven guys I had on instead. And you can also see my full ranked list there, one through a hundred. So, uh, yeah, it was fun. I was I was sort of hoping like they would maybe release it in order, but I. I I don't know. I guess I guess I understand like why you wouldn't. I, I don't know. You don't want guys to feel bad or whatever. And they also probably don't want to spoil because we do next month, October twelfth, we'll be releasing the All Centennial team, which is twelve forwards, six defensemen, two goalies. So you know, part of their thinking might be like if they released it ranked, that would sort of more or less spoil who makes the final twenty. So. um but yeah, it seems like it seems like people have had some some fun reacting to this and trying to find snubs or you know people they don't think should be there or whatever. And now now it's our turn, <laughs> me and Brian's turn to to say what we think about it. Um, yeah, can I just start off the top? And no offense to the the artiste, but those were scary pictures. <laughs> the artwork, like I'm looking at Patrice Bergeron's face in the artwork, and I'm just like, ah. Yeah. yeah, I thought the same thing when I saw Bergeron. I was like, I was like, they did Bergeron dirty on this one. <laughs> yeah, it was like the Ronaldo like, statue that they made, and yeah. they put it up, and it's like that's not Ronaldo. He looked like he looked like he was about to kidnap 101 Dalmatians or something. <laughs> I don't know what that was, but it was not Patrice Bergeron. It's like his nose is like it's like they like made his nose just like totally in the opposite direction. It's like come on, guys, the guy had a 20 year career, he had a few broken noses, like maybe. Maybe like draw when he was like eighteen and fresh faced, but yeah. yeah. He like Disney <laughs> so I thought I, two Scott that you had put in your list that you had not included that ended up on this final released list by the Bruins were Ted Donato and Phil Kessel. Um, I actually I feel like Phil Kessel you could make the argument for being on there, um, and so like I didn't see an issue with having Phil Kessel on that. Uh, what were your main reasons why you thought Kessel fell outside 100? Well, obviously he wasn't here very long, three seasons. And really it was that third season in 08-09 that he broke out and, and was really good that year. 36 goals was good that postseason when they went to the second round. Um, but what gets with me with Kessel being on is like, I wonder why he obviously a lot people some people had him on and Sagan off and I don't really, really entirely understand why like to me Sagan was also here three years and and I think did more like he actually contributed to a Stanley Cup you know he he didn't play a lot in that 2011 playoff run but when he did he was impactful games one and two of the Eastern Conference Finals he had six points in two games including four in one period in game two in a game, the Bruins end up winning six to five. And if he, if he doesn't go off there, you're looking at down Oh two to Tampa going down to Tampa. Like I, you can make the case. They don't win the Stanley cup without Sagan that year. So those two are interconnected in such a way as well, because that's how you got the Sagan pick was trading Phil Kessel. Yeah. Well, so like there's that interconnection between the two of them. One kind of leads to the other. They're both 
are not Bruins for an extremely long time, but very recognizable. And even, even after they left the Bruins went on to have these great careers. So when you see the name Tyler Sagan or Phil Kessel on a list of the best players from a franchise, you you don't usually question it because you think if you think of it as their entire career, you're like, oh yeah, those guys were some of the best players to ever play there, even though they weren't at their peak when they were with Boston, they've had these great careers. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that I, I kind of lean a little bit closer with Scott here uh, on if I if I had to choose um, one over the other, it would be it would be Sagan over Kessel just because, yeah, I just think um, that I, they both they both didn't have nearly as long of a career with Boston as they as they probably should have. Obviously, you don't get Sagan without moving Kessel. But, um, yeah, I do think to Scott's point, like the the whole 2011 uh, cup run, he did every guy in that team. Um in one way, shape, or form, had to make an impact, and he certainly did when they needed him. Don't forget, and you mentioned it, Scott, but like, yeah, Bergeron had gotten concussed by Clojure the round before, um, and yeah, and so I, I do think that um, it's close. It's close, but um, I'll I'll just name a couple of. Uh, 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 I'm going to name one snub, um, but before I do, another guy who I was surprised didn't make your list, Scott, or the 100 list. Um, was was Bill Guerin. Now, I know he only played um, not very long in Boston, and it was not one of the teams he was known for being a part of uh, throughout his career. He was with New Jersey and Dallas a lot and other places. But uh, 129 points in 142 games. Now, he was a dash five in those two years, and um, I think he was an okay playoff performer that year against Montreal in that series, though they lost to Montreal, and he didn't help them win. So, But he's not the one I want to make the big case for. I'm okay with Bill Guerin not being, you know, on the list. It's, it's it's what it is. But the one that I the one I noticed was snubbed because of. Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah. Some reason on, and if you're watching, well, they can't really see the the mute sign on YouTube on YouTube, but we can. Sometimes when I'm talking, my mic just like spazzes out and just like mutes itself. But anyway, um, if I were to tell you, Scott, because this guy was not on your list either. Okay, if I were to tell you that there was a Bruin that played 302 regular season games with the team, was a plus 24, and had 193 points, in addition had some key playoff moments and notable moments for the team, you think that guy should be in theory a top 100 player? Uh, I, I would need to know more over some of the other players that were on that list, and I'm gonna so I'll I'll I'll, I'll give you I won't you know lead you on too long. It's Marco Sturm. Yeah, Marco, I, I considered him. You did, sure. yeah. So I'm curious with him, right? Because I noticed he wasn't on your list either, and, and this is a this is a good conversation to have because I I do see players on the list like, I mean, you name whatever, like 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 a Keith Crowder, like you know whatever, or like uh you know like Sean Thornton. I love Sean Thornton, but you know he I think he's an he's an, he's a top 100 character. I think if you're talking about the franchise of the Bruins, but if you're talking player, see, that's why these, these, these lists get a little strange, but. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and just before we go any further, I'll note that what we were told was to rank the 100 most legendary Bruins is how they termed it. And they left it up to us to define legendary. So okay. I, I will say like, for me, that did change it a little where like my list is not necessarily the 100 best Bruins in my mind. Like, I made room for people who had 
legendary moments or playoff runs or even just one legendary season, mm. you know, even if they weren't here very long. Now, look to to the Sturm case, like you can make the case that he had a couple legendary moments. I mean, certainly the winter classic winner, like yep. that was that definitely stands out. So um and game yeah. six Montreal in 08, I think was a yeah. game that put Boston back on the map that led to that eventual Stanley Cup run three years later. Like I think he was a big component along with Patrice Bergeron and Mark Savard and Chara and, and a couple others. Um, Lucic, like Castle, even for a little bit there, that, that got that Bruins team back into contention and back into a uh, contender status. And and he played a big role in that. And he was also part of a trade, a very lopsided trade, obviously like sending Joe Thornton to San Jose and getting back Sturm and Brad Stewart and Wayne Primo. Um, but yeah, I just, uh, he, Sturm, Sturm had a lot of injury issues in Boston and people talk about 2010 and the loss to Philadelphia losing after being up 3-0 in the series and in game seven. And you point to the David Krejci injury and rightfully so, but they also went down Marco Sturm in that first game of the C- of the series too. And so the Bruins were down Sturm and Krejci in that series. And, um, Anyway, I yeah, he, he had he had injury issues, but he had the the winter classic moment for sure is legendary. And 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 that game six against Montreal in 08 goes down and I think it's a, I think it's a very, very well known game in Bruins history. I think everybody would say that. And there was a a moral victory, I guess, in losing that series to Montreal. The Bruins the eight seed, Montreal is the one seed, first playoff appearance in a few years. And it just got that team going into what they ended up becoming in the cup champion. So I noticed him. Um, not a huge deal. I do I do appreciate you clarifying what you guys were asked, Scott, because um, if we're talking 100 best players, I don't think Sean Thornton should be on that list. But if right. you're talking 100, you know, top 100 best characters or legendary players, he is without a doubt on that list. So it, it is um, it's it's a very subjective list, which makes it fun to discuss stuff like this. Yeah, and as you're as you're talking about um, you know players that didn't end up on the list that maybe just had one legendary season, like if you're if we're talking about just like very short, but oh, this was a really impactful year that they had. Uh, two players came to mind. One of them is on Scott's list of people he would have had on, uh, and that's Linus Ulmark, who in the very you know 99th season of Bruins history had an incredible year. And it feels like maybe that because he's not been here so long and because it's so recent, um, you know, he was on a historic team. He did historic things and he ends up getting the Vesna at the end of the Bruins 99th season. I know it's recent. Um, he recently has kind of become a legend. And you know what, if this, if the team had gone farther in the playoffs, won a Stanley cup, I wonder how many of the guys that are on the current team that would be on there over Certain guys, uh, I'm sure there would be more. So that uh, Allmark is one of them. And then this one just came to mind because uh, he's our friend from Sunday Skate, Andrew Raycroft, who uh, in his first season with the Bruins uh, won Rookie of the Year. So uh, he's going to be pissed at you, Scott. You didn't have him on your list. Uh, we will see him as soon as Sunday Skate starts. And we have we have him on the show, you know, sometimes before that. But uh, yeah. you're going to have some explaining to do with Andrew Raycroft. I, I, I saw Razor at the at the Jimmy Fund a couple of weeks ago. He was there for NASA. And actually, he was on the Great Hill Show, too, for a little while. And uh, we were talking a little bit about it um, because Bergeron was asked to rank his top five Bruins, too. Um, and I, I didn't have the heart to tell Razor then that, that he didn't make my hundred. But I'll say this. When, when I first was going through and just like 
putting down all names that I was like, there's all the obvious ones on there. I was like, I think this guy can make it. Razor was on my initial list and like definitely got consideration again, just because of that one year um, ultimately wound up getting bumped off, but you're right. I, I did have all Mark um, another one, like in that vein of just one great season was Joe Juneau who 92, 93 had 103 points and set the record for assists by a left wing in a season. He had 70 assists, which was an NHL record that stood until two years ago when Jonathan Huberto broke it. Um, and I feel like he's someone we've brought up before in conversations. Cause like when we've been comparing stats in the past, like Joe Juno has come, come up in our like research and for articles we've been writing over the past few seasons as well. Yeah. When, when Brad Marchand topped a hundred points for the first time, it was the first time in Bruins left wing had done it since Juno. So um, yeah, those are guys who didn't make it your point about this team if they'd won the cup this year, or I'll even throw 2019 in there. Yeah. It, it, for me, at least for me personally, it would have changed a lot because I, and based on guys like that I had in who didn't make it, I think I put more weight on being a contributor to, to a cup winning team. And yeah, from this recent era, it's like Charlie Coyle could have made it. Brandon Carlo, like those guys, Jake DeBrusque, like those guys aren't as far off as you might initially think, but not having a cup kind of hurts them if you're doing the compare and contrast against some other guys who who do have a cup. Um, speaking of which, like one of my biggest snubs uh, from, you know, same sort of era as we were talking about Sturm was Michael Ryder, who I think I thought was always very underrated even when he was here, but played a huge role in on that 11 team. He was third on the team in playoff goals that year, fourth in points had the overtime winner in game four against Montreal in round one makes the huge glove save in, in game five in a game that the Bruins end up winning in overtime, like just had some terrific moments. and was just a good player for, you know, the, the whole time he was here, it wasn't that long, but uh, you know, very critical time in this most recent era and part of a cup team. So I had him, I had him 87th, I think. Um, and was a little surprised to, you know, that he ended up missing out. Now, how much were you able to talk to other, to the other reporters who are working on this? Like, were you not supposed to talk to each other? Um, no, we did. I mean, there's like some texting back and forth or if we saw each other at um, like development camp or whatever at, you know, I wasn't really, I don't know that like anything anyone else said, like really impacted me, but like it, it was just fun to discuss and there yeah. was no, there was no sort of like mandate of like, don't talk to other people on the committee or anything like that. No NDAs. <laughs> no. Well, at least not amongst us. Like we can't, that there were, we, we couldn't discuss our list publicly until this came out. We can't discuss our all centennial team picks until that comes out. So yeah, like publicly we're a little limited on what we can talk about. Uh, Scott, mm -hmm. I, I also noticed you didn't have Greg Zanin or, or Byron Bits on your list. <laughs> what, gives, what gives there? <laughs> what's, what's going on there what, Scott one of, one of my one of my friends uh, immediately test, texted me about Brad Boys because we were when we were in high school we were big Brad Boys fans um, and it's like yeah I mean he had one really good year but you know unfortunately didn't didn't hang around long enough gets traded for Dennis Weidman which is funny when you look back on it because it's like initially that looked like a bad trade because Boys actually had a 40 good goal year in St. Louis that I think people forget but 
you know, Weidman for all the shit he got, like he was very good in that 08, 09 season. Um, ultimately, neither one of them particularly close to my 100, but <laughs> it, it was it was funny, like hearing from people who were just like throwing out, you know, personal favorites that they they you know wanted to see on or even just joke about. Yeah, well, I mean, up until up until t- from from 07, well, yeah, so we got they got traded in was it the end of the 07 season is when that trade happened. So you had you had Weidman for 0708 through uh 910 and and 0708 was the year that they went back to the playoffs for the first time since pre-Loco and you know, he was their he was their their number one puck moving defenseman on that on the, on those teams. Um you had Chara in his heyday, but he was not you know, the, the transition puck mover, that was Weidman. And and they relied on him for offense from the back end. And I think, without looking it up, I think Weidman had, like, yeah, like one year with, like, what, 60 points or something like that, Scott, as a defenseman. So, yeah, he – look, he, 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 was a, he was a liability at times defensively, but for what he was asked to do for you, he was definitely a, a good player, top 100. He was one of the few Bruins players I can remember getting booed on home ice, however, but right before he was moved. And then he ended up having an all-star season right after. <laughs> but by the end of him being in Boston, he was getting booed on home ice. Yeah, he, he finished 11th in Norris Trophy voting in 08-09. Like, yeah. uh, 50, 50 points plus 32, played 24-39 a game. Scott, I also noticed on your uh, in your article you posted your your rankings one through one hundred, and I'm curious. I, I found David Pasternak to be a little bit uh, low at number twenty. I think he was for. I mean, at this so at this point, you know, he's if he plays if he plays another whatever seven eight nine seasons, like he's he's easily going to eclipse probably the team's record in goal scoring. Um, he's been in the league for approaching a decade he's a he's one of the most prominent goal scorers in the world has been for a few years um obviously he's he's you know in, a, in the top of the Bruins list of all-time players and certainly I think when his career is done will be a top 10 on that list probably um so do you do you see him jumping up your list at career's end you, you just think he has more to prove still uh longevity wise you didn't because you had some guys ahead of him that didn't have, I mean, Cam Neely, for example, I think was ahead of him on your on your list ranking wise, and the argument could probably be made that he's ahead of both him and like somebody like uh, like I know David Krejci was ahead of him. Um, yeah, Krejci, Marshan. Marshan. Yeah, Marshan. I know these guys. Had, Marshan and Krejci have they have a Stanley Cup to the name and more longevity, but if you're talking like projections and just what they've done through, to this point in his careers. If that was a little bit low, but yeah, so I didn't, I didn't project forward at all. Like just for the sake of my ranking, I acted as if let's say his career ends right now for whatever reason, like, where is he? So that's where he ends up 20th for me. Um, yeah, I fully expect him to climb a lot higher than that. Uh, you know, well within the top 10 is within reach. Like it, Hey, if this next era of Bruins hockey, if they win a cup or two and he ends up as their all time goal leading goal scorer, like, you're talking top five like that. So sky's sky's the limit for where Pasan could end up. Um, I, I definitely could have bumped him even higher than 20. Like that's sort of right around like an interesting spot where like I Wayne Cashman one spot ahead of them. It's like Pasanak's clearly a better player than Wayne Cashman, but Wayne Cashman had one of the longest Bruins 10 years, won two cups was a captain. And it's like, you know, like that's a lot like Pasanak hasn't, done all that stuff yet um 
And then, you know, it's like, like, how do you even compare him to a Lionel Hitchman who has his number retired, but played in the twenties and thirties. Like, I, you know, that's tough. Um, then there's some, some goalies in there who won cup. Like, I guess I would say like, that's sort of the biggest thing missing is Pasenak hasn't won a cup yet. So, um, and I think most of the guys I had ahead of him have, or, you know, you mentioned Neely, obviously he didn't, um, Neely is still, he's first in Bruins history in goals per game. Still has the most playoff goals, even though guys like Marsha and Bergeron Krejci have played so many more playoff games than, than Neely did. So um, that matters. Like Neely, you know, was so good at, at his best. And yeah, like doesn't have the 60 goal ski- season that Pasenak does, but had the 50 goals in 49 game season, which is, you know, after a serious knee injury, which was crazy and just a testament to like how good he was, even even for a little bit post injury. Um so yeah, that was, and, and Neely has the the added benefit of like the you know the team identity. Like he along with Borg, like just defined an era. And I think Pasenak is just now entering sort of that moment in his career where he's gonna define this next era of Bruins hockey. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. I, I gotta, I gotta go back and, and check the tape. I hope I didn't say that Pasnock should be higher than Neely on the list, but no, I, no, I, no, you, you yeah. didn't, but you were just making the com- like yeah. comparison. Of, okay, yeah. Sometimes I have a moment. Cause you're right. Like, like Neely also had it similarly, like Pasnock does have almost as many games and years as Neely wound up with because, you know, unfortunately Neely just, didn't last as long as he should have because of the knee. Yeah. And, and in that year where I think it was like 93, 94, when he had the 50 goals in like 44 games, wasn't or something like that. Wasn't he weren't, weren't the Bruins like scratching him like every other game to yeah. like serve him. So it, it, it also was like to like, to like have just like built in nights off essentially every other game, but keep that mojo going is like, that's a challenge in and of itself. Yeah, which is why, like, if you look up, like, the NHL's official accounts of, like, 50 goal and 50 game seasons, he doesn't actually show up. He sort of shows up, like, below in a special category because technically to qualify, like, as as far as the NHL is concerned, it has to be 50 goals in the team's first 50 games, um, which it wasn't for Neely. But just in terms of production, it was – yeah, I mean, he was scoring – over a goal per game in the, in the games that he played that year. Yeah. And so I was, I was also wondering, Scott, with your rankings of like, I was looking through some of the defensemen that were on the list and I was wondering, have you, have, after writing your article and putting it out, have, has anyone approached you that either we work with or just read it and asked about some of where those defensemen were ranked because I feel like there's a lot of defensemen on the list that are either still playing or were just the era right before um, this current era, like they retired recently um, that some of where they fell felt like, Oh, I, I might've put this person higher. I might've put like, cause Charlie McAvoy is pretty high. Um, and obviously Tori Krug is somebody that made the list as well. He was kind of in the middle um, and you also had Seidenberg on there, um, Boychuk on there, no Adam McQuaid. Um, but the, so I was just, 
every time I was looking through where the defensemen were ranked, I always like was kind of questioning like, Oh, I wonder what was the thought process on that? Yeah. Adam McQuaid's one of the ones I've gotten the most pushback on or, or have seen people, you know, say like they wish he had made it. And on the one hand, like I get it. He's, he was a contributor on a cup team, you know, obviously really rugged. Everyone loved the effort that he brought for so many years. Um, to me, that's where like, I just don't know if he was really a, like a good enough player. You know, he was, he was third pairing. I mean, usually he was playing 12 to 14 minutes a game and Sean that's Thornton not... was a fourth liner. <laughs> yeah. And I guess this is where I take some liberties with like the, the legendary word that they gave us where I think Sean Thornton obviously was a huge and, and not that McQuaid wasn't a fan favorite. He was, but I mean, Sean Thorne was like one of the most beloved players from that team and like a true, you know, like almost like celebrity locally um, and still is like he people, st- you know, when he comes on like the Greg Hill show, some people still tune in and want to hear from him. Um, I think it's a little different with McQuaid. You know, he was a little more reserved, not as much in the spotlight, not as much of that, you know, like he was a, a fan favorite for the diehards, but maybe not for you know all the casual fans i guess um certainly thornton's fighting you know adds an element to he's second in team history in fights behind only terry o'reilly so um yeah like i would have no issue with someone putting mcquade in he just didn't didn't make it for me like you can't you can't put everyone from that 2011 team in you know some people mentioned like greg campbell and dan Paye, and it's like yeah i mean Campbell has an incredibly legendary moment finishing that shift with a broken leg against Pittsburgh. Like I absolutely can see the argument for that, but you know, another guy that ultimately missed for me. Um, yeah. I don't think I've gotten too much pushback though. on like where defensemen are ranked. Um, I did see a couple people who were like a little surprised that, or like maybe pleasantly surprised that Ferentz and Boychuk were on there, but it's like, they're they're second pairing on a cup team and second pairing for many years. And, you know, Ferentz was here a while. Like he, he dates back to even pre 10, 11. Like he was here for a few years before that and developed into a leader, you know, of the team. And, and at one point wore a letter, not on like an every game basis, but kind of on and off uh, towards the end of his time here. So um, yeah, for me, like those two were like easily in, but I think some people were, you know, maybe were uncertain of whether they'd make it and pleasantly surprised that they did. Yeah, well, Ferentz also flipped off 18 to 20,000 right. people in Montreal. <laughs> that that's enough to get him in the uh, Bruins 100 list anyway. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's a great list. I mean, yeah, I mean, McQuaid, I mean, you, you mentioned, Scott, like how you can't have every guy from those 2011 team on a list. Obviously, you're kind of being facetious, but at the end of the day, I mean, when, when the – when the franchise only has whatever six championships and it's 100 years and you just pull like, you know, four or five legends or let, you know, not legends, but four or five players from each team. I mean, you still have room for a lot more. Um, I think McQuaid's like just status of being just kind of like, like the mullet stands out to people. Um, and yeah, if we're talking hundred best players, no, he's not there. But if you're talking like legend, legendary Bruins, I mean, he was a fan favorite for about a deck, almost a decade. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's all good. Um, anyways. Also, when I was thinking about McQuaid too, and with a few of the other 
people because there's been players who played for the Bruins for, you know, a long time, a short time, doesn't matter. But then they've also gone in and done other jobs in the organization. Right. Um, so like you're talking about Don Sweeney, you're talking about um, Adam McQuaid, who's still in the organization um, in the development side of things. And so I didn't know if you were allowed to consider some of the other aspects of even when their career ended, like their impact we, on the Bruins. Yeah, we were told not to. We were told this was about playing careers, what guys did as players. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know if other people maybe did take that into account to some extent, but I, I really tried not to. Like I tried to just focus on what they did during their playing careers because you you can go back even further like guys like you know Cooney Weiland went on to coach the team did clabber Milt Schmidt did everything like if if you're just talking like overall impact like Milt Schmidt could be number one like he could be like the one guy who would challenge or because he did everything like he was coach GM he's he was brand ambassador like he was around the team for like 70 years this episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, so I would say at this point, Bridget and Scott, unless you have any final closing thoughts on the 100 list, maybe maybe we uh, we kick this can down the road and we start discussing maybe some training camp storylines. Let's do it. Yeah. So obviously, as we we set off the top, I mean, the rookie camp is going on this week at Warrior. You have the you have the rookie tournament in New York. I don't know why I just said tournament like I'm from Long Island tournament. <laughs> um, in in one of my roommates in college used to say it like that tournament um which if you if you sound it out actually probably is how it should be spelled or pronounced but anyway um you have the rookie tournament in in buffalo this weekend in training camp as we said a week from today so with that in mind um scott i know you you were you had some some storylines you you were looking to follow and bridget as well yeah i mean there's there's a lot i guess you know for me like the most fascinating one is just going to be uh, the whole battle for bottom six jobs because there's just so many bodies there. Like we know, all right, so let's say you pencil in JVR, James Van Reems, like on the first or second line, whatever, you know, Trent Frederick's going to be on the third line. Seems like most likely as a wing based on Jim Montgomery's comments. Although we'll see if, you know, he gets a look at center at some point, but then everything else, it's like, I don't know that anything's really settled. Morgan Geeky's going to play. He's going to be somewhere. But is it third line center? Is it on the fourth line? You know, center wing? Because he can play either. And then you just have, you know, is Milan Lucic going to be a regular? Is he going to be, is he going to end up as 
an extra forward. He's not getting cut. He's going to be here. But what's his role? And then, you know, everyone else they've brought in. Patrick Brown, does he solidify a regular role? Yes, for Boquist. Um, AJ Greer's back. Jacob Lauko's back and in that competition. Alex Chase and Danton Heinen on PTOs. Do they win spots and, and win contracts? All the young guys who could push that group, whether it's Georgie Merkulov, Johnny Beecher, Mark McLaughlin. You know, I don't know if Fabian Lysel is necessarily pushing for a bottom six job, but maybe he could be a third liner. Like, so maybe throw him in as well. I just think that entire group is just, there's just so many people there. And like a lot of players who bring different things, some speed, some bigger, more physical, some, you know, better defensively. Like it's just all over the map. So just how that plays out, I think is going to be really fascinating. Yeah. And you, you kind of alluded to my lead storyline, which um, I think is like fairly obvious because of, the lead up to this season, losing two of your, both of your top two centers. Um, The question around the center position is there's so many different aspects to follow that I'm just going to merge them all into one, just following what happens at center, because there's questions about, you know, first of all, preseason for us is a lot of fun to evaluate the young talent that we don't really, we don't spend a lot of time. We we don't spend any time in Providence, uh, Scott and I, like we don't, there's no Providence Bruins games we go to. Um, Scott was at, uh, rookie development camp and, and, you know, he saw a few of the younger guys this, this off season, but for a majority of people, it's the first time they're going to be able to see how those younger centers like Merkulov, um, get mixed into the group. Where do they stand? Um, what's their development been like? So evaluating them at center, uh, is, going to be something interesting to to watch and see if they're able to make some sort of a push for a job as well as how does Pavel Zaka play as potentially the number one center uh how does Charlie Coyle play like where where are they matching them with because we've had conversations on here before do they put Zaka keep Zaka with Pasta like there's just a lot of rotation that could happen and it's going to be a lot of trying to find the best fit for those two centers um, and then trying to move around the guys in the bottom six. Uh, you mentioned some, there's plenty of players on the Bruins that can play wing and center. Um, and then there's those younger guys. We want to see what, what they can do. So uh, center is a huge question for the Bruins, obviously. And there's just going to be a lot of moving pieces that they can slot in. And, and you know, Montgomery is going to have to try to do as much as he can to find chemistry before the season starts. Um, and find who the best fit is in, you know, in all four center slots. Yeah, center ice is a, is a, a massive uh, talking point and in, in, in place to watch, not only in preseason, but just throughout the regular season as well. And, and you know, I have less questions on defense. I have less questions in goal. I mean, my, my biggest question in goal is, is, is one of, is, you know, one of all marker Swayman eventually maybe moved. And that's just such a, who knows, but that like, that, as far as their performance goes, uh, I have no questions. And um, so for me, it's, it's, it's in addition to what you guys have discussed, but yeah, it, it's, I, I want to watch Georgie Merkulov in training camp and, and Fabian Lysel and see if, see if some of these younger guys that have, that have higher upside 
um, some of the, some of these younger players that are projected to not just be a fourth liner, right? Like see if they can, you know, can they take advantage? I mean, again, we've talked about it. Fabian Lysel is turning 21 in January. You know, he's, he's, he's young, but he's not a fresh faced 18 year old draft pick from two months ago. Like he's, he, he's starting to get to that point now where it's like, okay, like, you know, being a 21 year old in the NHL this day and age is not unheard of. And in fact, a lot of younger players with higher upside are doing that at this point in their career. So I want to see him certainly push for a spot. And if he's not on the, on the opening night roster, that's fine. But I want to be able to see him in preseason and know he has, he has the potential to help this team as soon as this year. And I would say the same goes for Georgie Merkulov, another kid who's, um, what, what, 21 years old, maybe 20, he's 20, 22, 22 or 23. Right. So it's, it's, you know, these two, these two offensive prospects for the Bruins, like they're not like they're at an age where it's not unreasonable at all. Certainly not in Merkulov's case, 22, three. I mean, come on. Yeah. Right. Merkulov turns 23, October 10th. All right. So, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, that's where they have it. He'd be 23 to start the season essentially. So, I mean, not to compare him to David Pasternak at all, but if you look at David Pasternak, when he was 23 years old, he was already, you know, four years into his NHL career, like an established, you know, 36 plus goal score um, at least. Right. And again, I'm not comparing them at all. He was a first round pick. I'm just, I'm only stating the fact that like, if we're talking age, you can be a productive NHLer at that age and certainly an NHLer in general at 23 years old. In fact, that's probably like, I mean, one of the more average ages probably in the NHL is people breaking in before they're 23 or maybe yeah. not. I don't know. He's, yeah. he's changing, but he's right. He's undrafted as well. So like he's, he's kind of a guy that was off people's radar until the Bruins were able to pull him out of college. And that was another really good free agent signing by them. But like to your point about seeing Merkulov and Lysel and I mean, Mason Lorai as well. So even like the younger, the youngest of the group, um, you're going to have a chance to see what they look like against actual, you know, NHLers. Uh, it's not just where they rank amongst themselves now. It's it's not even just where they rank in the Bruins depth chart. It's like, okay, is does this young defenseman, say Mason Lorai, get exposed doing this, this or that? And how do we fix that? And how do we develop him further? Like finding strengths and weaknesses of those players against NHL talent, against veterans against players in their prime and seeing how they match up against those players rather than we're just, you know, we're not talking about seeing them against guys in the AHL or guys that, um, that are also rookies. Like we're seeing them against the NHL talent and we're going to be able to have a better idea of how far they are from making an NHL team. Or maybe if they look ready, you're pleasantly surprised um, by how certain players um, hockey smarts are the way that they know the game, the way that they're able to think at an NHL level that's all possible. So like, it, it's, it's different to see them in preseason, which is unfortunately pretty short, uh, a short sample size for a lot of the guys, cause they don't play in all the games. And, um, you know, a lot of times the younger guys that aren't expected to make the team play on the road and the more veteran players play at home. So we don't get a chance to see a lot or as many, uh, of the combinations we might want to see, or as much of certain players as we'd want to see, but you actually do get a sense, uh, of where they might rank among NHL talent, um, how far behind they might be or how ready they are. Yeah. And, and what you do get is you get those young kids still playing against NHL talent in those preseason games, because a lot of teams do exactly what you just said, which is veterans play at home. Then they're not going to make them travel. So that the kids go on the road. Well, what that means is you get veteran home team against kids road team. 
So, you know, all those prospects are still going to get tested, not just in camp against, you know, the Bruins roster, but also against other, you know, against the Rangers or Flyers or whoever and face, you know, at least probably, you know, 50 to 60% of like a normal NHL lineup. Um, Lori brings up another, you know, I think just a, not one of the most interesting because as Brian said, defense seems a little more settled, but just a storyline to follow is, you know, does someone upset the apple cart on defense? Like, is there something we're not anticipating? Because if you line it up right now, you'd say, okay, Grizzly McAvoy, Lindholm Carlo, Forbert, Chattenkirk, Zaboral, probably the seventh defenseman. All right. Does anyone change that? Does Mason Lori push for a job? Does in Ian Mitchell or Alec Regula, the two guys they got from Chicago for Taylor Hall, who have played some NHL games. It's not like they're completely foreign to this level. Um, you know, do either of them push for a job? Like someone else that, you know, Riley Walsh, another guy they got this offseason. Parker Weatherspoon played NHL games for the Islanders. Like it's it's a group that's maybe lacking in terms of high-end prospects outside of Lori but it is a group that has guys to have played NHL games beyond just, you know, the six or seven we're already penciling in. Um, so I'm a little interested in that. Like, I think my expectation is it's going to play out to chalk basically, but who knows, you know, and Laura is certainly the most interesting one there because we know, you know, he said it, he said it uh, when I had him on the podcast, he said it in interviews at development camp, like, he wants to be an NHLer this year. He wants to make the team. So we're, we'll see. You know, is he is he really ready to do that? And Connor Clifton left in free agency, so that does you know change the depth chart in there a little bit. You know, towards the bottom end, you lose Clifton. That was another person who was at during the playoffs at times the extra defenseman at times playing. So um, he's got a little bit of extra room there. But like you mentioned, defense is so solid for the Bruins. It's not it's going to take a quite a bit um, or an injury um, for him to crack the lineup out, out of camp. Yeah. Especially when, well, so I, I think it's definitely somebody like Derek Forbert's job to lose based off of him being on the team last year. But when you talk about handedness, I mean, you know, if, if I, if I'm, if I'm Mason Lori, it's like, I'm looking at Derek Forbert. I mean, if you have if you have McAvoy and Grizzlick and Lindholm and Carlo, I mean, Kevin Shattenkirk wouldn't be a bad guy to mentor uh, Mason Laura on a third pair in his first NHL season at some point. And, you know, also considering the fact that the Bruins, in theory, at least we think, might have more trouble scoring this year than last year um, because of a little bit of lack of top six punch, uh, it doesn't hurt to maybe have some a more offensive threat on the back end and Laura to help push offense and create transition that Derek Forbert just isn't, it's not really his game. How much yeah, do you but they love him on the penalty kill? So well, much. And I feel like that trumps like so much of what, like the offside that we might see, like it, that the penalty killing from Derek Forbert is just like, they're, they love it. And that, that they take into consideration so much. Well, that's what I was just going to say. I was going to say how much do the Bruins value Derek Forbert's penalty killing. And I think, Honestly, the Bruins are going to have to ask themselves a lot this year. Um, like beggars can't be choosers. Like we need to, we need to address certain things because last year they had the luxury of having the greatest team, regular season team in the league's history, um, at least in the standings. Um, 
So they had they had the depth uh, to, to, to and the luxury to sit there and be like, well, we can use Derek Forbert for his PK. But when you're lacking offense potentially this year, you might have to sacrifice a little bit to, to gain more in other areas. And, and they're going to have to – they can't be so stubborn this year. Their roster doesn't allow them to be so stubborn anymore. And, you know, as far as, like, Scott mentioning that the Bruins don't really have many defensive prospects outside of Lori, I would also add, like, the Bruins don't really need defensive prospects right now because you have your your number one defenseman for the next decade on your team in Charlie McAvoy. Brandon Carlo is in his prime. Uh, Matt Grizzlick is still a good player, obviously. Uh, you know, Lindholm you have locked up for another, whatever, seven seasons. And 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 you do have Lori, right? So the Bruins aren't going to be needing a number one defenseman for another 10 – like right now the, in, their, in the Bruins, the state of their franchise, they don't need to have a ton of – defensive prospects because they have young solid better than solid defensemen right now at the NHL level and they do for the foreseeable future so beyond Lori it's good to have those assurances you were mentioning Scott the guys with NHL experience but unlike the center ice position where it's kind of like where is that next guy coming from the Bruins have that like the Bruins have their Patrice Bergeron of 10 years ago right now and Charlie McAvoy and and you have you know Mason Lori coming up too so they're okay there but yeah, it's it's a fair it's a fair thing to watch. Like we t- we say the defense is set. If I'm Mason Lore, I'm I'm questioning that. Is it set? Can I can I trump Derek Forber on a third pair as a left shot? That yeah, I I think I can. So it might not be right away in October, uh, or the first week of the season, but something to watch definitely as the season goes on. Yeah, you're right. Like that's like, I I always think of on conversations like this, Brad Marchand years later. Um, during it, and it must have been around this time of year, I'm assuming, told us he was like, Yeah, when I was younger, like when I went into camp, I I I would point to players on ahead of me, you know, quote unquote ahead of me on the depth chart and say, That's the guy I'm beating out. And it's like no kid's ever gonna admit to that at the time, right? Like you know, I've talked to a couple like like I've mentioned Martian saying that to a couple younger players, you know, the last couple of years, and it's like yeah, obviously like, they're never going to say that, but I do wonder, like Mason Lori internally looks at Derek Forbert and says that. I, I hope he does. Like that that's a great attitude to have. You don't have to be arrogant about it. You don't have to tell anyone you're doing it, but yeah, he should. Like he should look at it and be like, I can beat him out for that job. Um, and it could even be a situation where, to your point about like, if they need more offense, Maybe it's Zaboral getting knocked out of the picture, and you know, Lori plays in matchups where the Bruins think they need a little more offense. Maybe they're not facing you know a top power play or whatever. Forbert plays if they think they need you know a little more defense that night, or you know they are facing a top power play. Like Lori can contribute and be on the NHL roster without necessarily playing every single night. He can't do what Zaboral did last year. Like you can't have him on the NHL roster and then have him go a month without playing. That doesn't help anyone for a kid who's still developing. But if he's playing every other night or something like that, like to me, that's still valuable. You know, we've seen that before where like, you know, a Tyler Sagan wasn't a full-time player right away, but it was like, but he has a role and he's going to play often enough that it's worth having him here. Um, So that's also a possibility. One thing too, Bridget, and I and I was just thinking about this literally in the last five seconds is that um, 
because well first of all yes scott that's exactly right like you don't you don't want to ice him out you want to either have him playing whether it's in providence on a regular basis or in the nhl on the bare minimum like you know and every other game pace like you don't want to ice him out that 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 yeah. hinders his development for sure um Bridget, also like to the to the Derek Forbert thing, like I was one of those people last year where like people were like shitting on Forbert and I was like, guys, look, I was like, the Bruins are scoring at an incredible pace. Like they have they have McAvoy, they have Lindholm, they have Orloff, they have all these guys that can push play up up on the back end and also defend well. It's okay to have uh, a defensive minded guy that just eats shots in the penalty kill in the playoffs. It'll be great. And then and in the regular season, it was fine. I mean, and, and he even got, but he did get injured a couple of times blocking those shots. But then in the playoffs, it's like the Bruins penalty kill was not great against Florida. And he's a part of that. So I, you know what? Hey, I don't know. Maybe he also maybe, was like, injured going into the playoffs though. Like I think was, did he even play in the last game of the regular season? Is that his first game back? He was injured. I, I believe he was I, injured I think, going into the playoffs because yeah. I remember I was in Montreal and he took, he took like him and Felino, um, took like morning skate or something, but didn't play. I think so. I don't, I don't know if I'm remember, misremembering that, but he was. No, I, th- I think you're right. I think game one was his first game back. Yeah. The only, I guess what I'm saying is like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't sacrifice like the development and potential emergence of somebody with the upside of Laura. just that Derek Forbert can get in the PK though. I will say to play devil's advocate. One of the other reasons I wanted Derek Forbert in the lineup last year was because if so- somebody has to eat shots in the penalty kill, Right. So I was, in my mind, it was like, well, it's either Forbert or it's somebody who's better than him, <laughs> like a McAvoy or a Carl. I was like, so I'd rather him eat the shots. Um, anyway, um, but I think we're all kind of on the same page. It, it, these these spots are for grabs, play, you know, earn it, play, play for it, earn it and see what happens. So it's, it's again, there's there's so much to look forward to this year that that like last year going into the season, we were kind of like, uh <laughs> Well, we got McAvoy up for like what felt like half the season, and Marshand out. They came back. They come back earlier than we thought. But even in the even while they were out, the Bruins just took off, obviously. And then it was cup or bust, right? But this year, there's just there's so many different storylines to follow, uh, and, and so many like so many players that that are trying to fight for for jobs and and sh- improve their worth and show that they can elevate their game. And there's a lot of chemistry that needs to be formed. And and there's and a few players that like they're we want to see how much they have left in the tank that are on the, towards the, the end side of their career that right. have been added. And then there's these, there's some players that they've added like Boquist and geeky who maybe feel like they were just in the wrong fit and trying to find a better fit here, trying to see if they can um, like resuscitate their career and what they want it to be. So there's, there's definitely a lot of storylines because there was so much turnover. Hmm. Can you remember an off season with this much turnover for a Bruins team? It's been a long time. I mean, yeah. Maybe like maybe like that 07, 08 season, like when when they brought in um, Claude Claude for the first year, and you kind of had you kind of have like that same vibe where like a bunch of new guys like like Peter Schaefer came in, Glenn Metropolit, like you know, um, I mean I'd go down. I mean Lucic for I mean was one. Like there were so many different guys. Like it was such a random mix of players that year. It really was, and they and, and they scratch and clawed their way to a playoffs. Yeah, that was and that was really like. Krejci's first full season, I think. Like he had like a cup of coffee the year before. So Bergeron goes down the whole year. Glenn Murray's on your first line. Um, Petteri Nokalainen's in your fourth line with Jeremy Reach. Remember those guys? <laughs> like, uh, I mean, PJ Axelson was on that team. It was such a, a Chuck Kobusu 
you know, was was it was one of your like better forwards that year, right? And like, so yeah, you know, sometimes it's there's, when there's a lot of turnover, like there's a. But again, this this Bruins team, top to bottom, they still expect to compete and 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 contend for the playoffs at the bare minimum. So it's not like these guys don't have any pressure on them. Oh, there's so much turnover. There's so many unknowns. But like, no worries if you guys don't perform. Like, no, it's their hundredth season, and so that's another element of it where it's like it's all these new pieces but the pressure is still there to perform. And, so like, and that creates a like massive storyline that we haven't even talked about, which is Montgomery having to coach probably a very different way this year, how he's able to go from handling the maybe best team of all time to this team that is going to have to find chemistry. Um, he was able to be the good guy a lot last season, probably not going to be the case this year. Um, he was able to have his leaders uh, kind of, dictate the locker room have Bergeron speak up Bergeron's not there anymore so like where are the voices going to come from this season how much is Montgomery going to have to change how he coached from last year because this is a completely different task for him yeah I I think Montgomery is going to enjoy this season honestly like if you look at you know him as a college coach building teams at Denver when he was in Dallas that was a team that was incorporating a lot of you know, had a veteran core, but was also incorporating a lot of younger players. And obviously he had a blast last year, right up until the playoffs. Um, You know, a team like that is any coach's dream to coach. And this year is going to be more work in the sense of finding the right lineup and all that. But I get the impression like that's a process Montgomery really enjoys is like trying to fit things together, trying to, get more out of guys in different roles. Um, And in a way, I think almost sort of suits his style better. Like he had, you know, last year was, was a new experience for him too. Like he had not coached an NHL team like that. That was the favorite that had the absolute highest of expectations. And that might be part of the reason why he, you know, in the playoffs that got, you know, a little loose with the line changes and, and whatever was he, he hadn't been through that before and didn't quite get it right. Obviously. Um, I think he's, I think he's well suited for a team like this. That's going to have to come together and grow. Like, I think those are strengths of his as a coach. And there's not, not that there's always going to be pressure when you're a coach in Boston, but there's not going to be the pressure of last season of like, Hey, it's, it's copper bus. Like anything, even if that team loses in the second or third round, it's a major disappointment. Like this year is different. There's, there's not going to be that pressure. There's still going to be pressure to perform because it's Boston and the Bruins have a very passionate fan base, but there's not that pressure of like, Oh boy. Like I, I just better not screw this up. Like the only thing I can do here is screw this up. It's not gonna be the case this year. He can do a lot to help this team come together. Yeah, he absolutely can. And and I think that, yeah, he has a he had a different task last year. There, yes, he got a lot out of some of these guys like Frederick and others, but it was a very veteran heavy team. And, and while they did replace some veterans that left with some other veterans and Lucic and Ben Reams, like and Shattenkirk, like there's clearly a different task this year for for Jim Montgomery to connect with these players and get the best out of them when the roster on paper isn't what what it, as good as it was last year. Um, one of those elements, and and Scott, there is a an NHL. Uh, league 
story regarding a, a certain coach that I know you wanted to get to at some point. But before we do, um, Bridget, I wanted to get your opinion. We didn't get a chance to to discuss this with you, but speaking of Jim Montgomery, um, he uh, a former uh, Denver Pioneer is back with Boston, at least on a professional tryout. Do you have an opinion on the Bruins signing Danton Heinen to a PTO? Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Uh, same, same thing as I would say with a lot of the uh you know the acquisitions the low risk acquisitions that they've had i mean they same with chase on why not try it out i mean it, it's it's pretty much no risk at all um he's just here on a tryout so I, I don't see an issue with that uh i mean i liked him when he was here he had uh he hasn't had the most fruitful career when he came out of school he was projected to be a little bit better than I think he turned out to be in the NHL, but um, maybe this is a, a, a second chance for him that ends up being a better fit with the coach. Like you, like you mentioned, the coaching um, of Montgomery and there, there are spots to be had on the bottom in the bottom six. So uh, let them, let them have a crack at it. What's Andrews Bjork doing this year? Do you want to, should they give him Can a piece? Wait, no, did he get traded to Chicago? <laughs> yeah, I think he's in, he wasn't, he was in Rockford. I don't know where he is now. He might be still there. Yeah. He wasn't on your 100. Just, just missed. <laughs> just missed by about 950. Um, <laughs> uh, so Scott, you texted Bridget and I. I guess there's something to do with Mike Babcock. What's going on in, in in Columbus, huh? Yeah. So you know, I'll try to do this somewhat quickly, but this is just a fascinating story to me, and frankly, hilarious story. Um, so Paul Bizanet on Spit Spin Chicklets uh, a couple days ago told a story of how he had heard from former players, including blue current blue jackets, which is where Mike Babcock is now. This is his first season uh, returning as, as a head coach. And he is in, Col- in Columbus that. So biz said that Babcock was like having players turn over their phones and like projecting photos fr- like going through photos on their phones as like part of an exercise to like learn about players or like what kind of people they are and was like putting them on a projector in his office or something. And biz spun this towards like the like legitimate invasion of privacy territory of like, they're like, this is bullshit. Like this is, you know, stuff coaches just shouldn't be doing like almost like mind fucking with players. And, uh, Babcock denied it. Columbus captain Boone Jenner uh, also put out a statement saying that like when he met with Babcock, you know, they were just talking about family stuff and Babcock just asked to see some photos of his family and it wasn't at all how it was portrayed. Well, Biz then doubled down on it, said like, cut the bullshit. Basically said like, you know, sorry to Boone Jenner for putting him in a tough spot. But like what, how Babcock's spinning it is 
not at all what I've heard from players. Um, Ryan Whitney, fellow co-host on Spit and Chicklets, backed up Biz's perspective. And so, like, I just find this incredible because it's like now Babcock, who is no stranger to controversies and has had some weird situations like this in the past, like people might remember when Mitch Marner was a rookie, there was a report that he had Marner, like, rank his teammates work ethics or something and then shared it with the whole team and it like just made things really awkward where like Marner was like I didn't know he was gonna like I didn't even want to do that and I didn't know he was gonna share it type thing um there's been some other stuff like that like look Babcock's a hard ass so he's like very old school and he sort of has this reputation of like not being very welcoming to players sometimes so starting things off like this in Columbus, there's now, you know, the team set or the NHL is looking in, into it. The NHL PA is looking into it. Um, and, you know, and then the other side of it, like the media side is biz is obviously not just a barstool guy. Now, like he's on TNT and one of the biggest names in national hockey broadcasting. Um, and, you know, I think, you expect when someone kind of moves into that space that, you know, they're mostly going to be friendly with everyone and they're not really going to go after someone in a way that could, you know, if it turns out to be true, like potentially put someone on a hot, on a hot seat. Um, and in this case, biz is obviously not towing any sort of company line. Like he, he doubled down on and is clearly going at Babcock and very clearly does not like Babcock has heard from other players who don't like them. And um, I don't, I'm, I'm fascinated by like where this ends up going because uh, it's, you know, it's turned into like a pretty big story. It was not just a sort of a one-off comment on the pod. It's now something bigger than that. Yeah. Cause they denied it and it made, it made it look like uh Bizonet and Whitney were like making it up. Right. Like, cause it's one thing if it's like you said, it's a barstool podcast. Right. It's, but now he's a, a face of the media where we have different, you know, uh, vetting that we usually do before we say anything publicly. Like you can't be on TNT or, or you know, whatever major broadcast organization and come out and say something that's false. And then, you know, you're risking losing your job. So, you know, I really hope he vetted what he said before he did, because then his job is at risk, honestly, if somehow it comes out that you know, he was, this was kind of like a made up or misconstrued situation, but that's, that's the the difference between his new job and, you know, maybe back before when he was just doing the podcast. Um, so that maybe this is, we, we find out, um, is a lesson learned on his part, but if he's telling the truth, which he did, they did put up a, a screenshot of the text. So it seems like it's definitely based in some sort of fact and there was at least one player i think they said more than one player that um mentioned that it felt intrusive so uh, it's a lesson for i guess babcock as well that a lot of times you maybe don't intend to do something like that intend to make people feel that uncomfortable or maybe you do i don't i don't really know so i also remember he was a commentator himself actually for a little bit but he didn't stick around too much was he on NBC? I forget. Yeah, Babcock was himself was. a commentator between this job and when he lost his job in Toronto. Um, definitely an interesting dude. The only interaction I've ever had with Mike Babcock was like the weirdest 
interaction <laughs> because I the very first bar I walked into in Nashville, Tennessee was Tootsie's. And the very first person I saw in that bar was Mike Babcock. And I was like, what is he doing here? And then I realized that Toronto had a game the next day and he was like incognito dressed up like anyone in Nashville would be dressed up. And he was tipping the band in, in Tootsie's. And I made like the most awkward direct eye contact with him with probably the weirdest face I could have possibly made. And he knew it. He knew I knew who he was. <laughs> and he just like nodded his head to me and walked out. And I was like, what the hell is he doing in Tootsie's right now? But anyway, he was probably, gone. Probably and then I, spying and then I, on players. He was trying to see who was, was out or something. He was out by himself, as far as I could tell. No one else in my friend group had any idea who Mike Babcock was. And I was so confused. I was like, aren't you supposed to be in Toronto right now? But the Maple Leafs were in town the next day. And then the Penguins were in town a few days later. And I saw Sidney Crosby, Phil Kessel, half the Penguins teams out until three in the morning at uh, Dirk's Bentley's. I don't know. It was a very NHL-centered uh, trip on accident because I just was going to Nashville. But I saw Sidney Crosby twice just walking yeah. around and hanging out in a bar. I don't know. It was a weird trip. And uh, that was the only time I ever met Mike Babcock. <laughs> I think I think that's a road trip NHL players really like. Uh, yeah, they were out till three in the morning, so I think they enjoyed their time. Well, yeah. As far as the the story goes, um, you know, Biz and 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 Wit, like those guys are very plugged in. Obviously, they're a huge friend, uh, players player friendly podcast, but they're also an industry uh, a league friendly podcast. Like the, you know, they have executives on all the like people love them and they have they, they have a rolodex of, of contacts and and i'm sure that i'm sure that what they're hearing is is legitimate um as far as like the actual uh story of like invasion of privacy and stuff like that i mean look it's one of those situations where like people oftentimes forget that like professional sports is a business and pretend pretend this was your boss at any other company in america asking to see pictures of your face like uh, no, <laughs> like to me, it's like nobody should have to disclose anything about personal information that they don't want to. Uh, and, 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 and I understand in sports, you have the, you have the, the whole aspect of team building and camaraderie. It's like, well, you don't need to know about my, my wife and kids. If like for me to bond with like my teammates in this locker room and my co and the coaching staff, it's, it is, it is the, people are allowed um, their personal lives and, and the privacy to be, to be held there. And, and, and especially when, when you're a professional athlete, that's, that's, that is your place of work. Like you do want to keep things separate. And um, if a player initiates this, that's one thing, but you shouldn't be um, obligated by, by your, uh, your employer and your, and your direct boss to, to display this. So if it is true, I do think it is, uh, I get what Babcock is doing. He's trying to, you know, build trust and, and, and personal relationships with people so that the team can be closer. I get it. But you have to remember, Michael, that it is business and that you can't you can't force people to do that. It, so if that is the case, you know, it is crossing a bit of a personal boundary line um, as far as uh, Paul Bissonnette and just like how he handled it. Um, yeah. And, and by the way, that. like there's there's other ways you can do that stuff. You can have like a, a family day at the rink. I know the Bruins in the past and like that little gap between the preseason and the start of the regular season have had like a team, like family barbecue where everyone goes. And it's like, you know, th so there's other ways you can sort of try to build that, like that family, that community feel without, 
you know, asking to go through players' photos. Um, yeah. But yeah. So yeah, can, can you imagine <laughs> what would your what would it look like if you showed us your phone, Scott? Just a bunch of mirror selfies and some pictures of your dog and. Yeah, it's yeah, it's my it's my dog, it's beer, and it's me kayaking. Like those, those <laughs> are all my photos. I just Re- like really, really juicy stuff. Speaking of juicy stuff, I just got pictures of like Chick Fil A chicken sandwiches and stuff, <laughs> and waffle fries. Well, like, if anyone looked at mine right now, it wouldn't be good because I just came back from vacation. It's just all me, like out having fun on a boat. I'm gonna say I would just be jealous, and then I'm like throw your phone in a lake or something. <laughs> Yeah. Just me drinking all the wine in Italy. <laughs> yeah, so you know, putting putting people's personal camera rolls on display for any sort of reason is is a no go, uh, Mister Mister Mike Babcock. So yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's a stupid story. It's like what how what? Yeah, you just know? just quickly like to close this in, in a little bigger picture. I'm just fascinated how that's going to work this year because I I don't think like that's a good fit for him. I, I don't see it going very well because I think if Babcock fits any team, to me, it's more one like what he had in Detroit or with the Canadian Olympic team where it's like a super talented team and he can get at least has a track record of getting the best out of superstars. Columbus is rebuilding. That's a really young team and and they're incorporating a lot of high draft picks and, and getting them, you know, incorporate you know into the nhl and i don't think that's babcock's strength like i i'm i know what columbus was thinking they they see babcock as sort of a culture setter a guy who's won who wants to you know they want him to come in and be like hey here's what it looks like when you win like this is what we're building towards this is the kind of culture that winning teams have but actually be like on the ice and working with players I don't know if he's going to be the best for, for a young team like that. So I'm, I'm fascinated. I'd say I'm like 70% of me expects it to, to be a disaster and last like one year. Well, we've seen coaches get fired after like seven games. (laughs) Like (laughs) there's been times where coaches like literally lasted the first two weeks of the season and they were gone. So like if, if there was already issues with the locker room, in that early part of the season and they lose the first like six out of seven. I don't know. Maybe, maybe he's, he's out. Like there's been short leashes in the NHL before. Who do you, what's coaching situation in the league would you say is more dangerous? Babcock in Columbus or Tortorella in Philly? Like, because I know Tortorella in Philly is like supposed to be a culture change, but that team is so they're they're even worse this year than they're gonna be than they were last year personnel wise, and they sucked last year personnel wise. Mm-hmm. It's like Tortorella is just gonna wear so thin. Like I think there's there's a time and a development a team's development to bring him in. Like I think you bring him in like I don't know. It, it's just he's gonna try to change the culture, but they're gonna turn on him, and it's gonna be like back to square one. And he won't, and he certainly won't be there when they're good. I feel like I don't know. At least Laviolette seems like he kind of found a happy place to land in with the Rangers. But yeah, I don't know. Get get my guy Guy Boucher back here. Somebody give Guy a chance. <laughs> yeah, I, I think with, with Tortorella, yeah, I don't think that's a great situation either. But I feel like at, at, at least at times I've seen Tortorella in like his own way show a little bit of a softer side and like take players under his wing be protective of them like especially in a place like philly where 
you know, if a young player struggles, they get ripped by, by media, like Tortorella will like at least have his players back against something like that. Like he'll, he'll go at the media and then he'll make it between him and the media. Now all of a sudden, you know, that player's not hearing it as much. So like, I at least see some value there, even though I don't really think, you know, what's happening in Philly is going to be particularly great. Um, but Babcock, I, I kind of struggled to see really any, any silver lining and now it's already off to this weird start. Like, well, we'll see. Maybe, maybe he surprises me, but I, yeah, I, uh, I'm going to be following that just because I feel like it could blow up at any time. Bridget and Scott, I know, I know we're, we're running late, but I do want to ask you guys this real quick. Cause I just saw it on, on, uh, online and I won't be here next week to kind of ask you. So, um, there's, Word out of Calgary that uh, Elias Lindholm is like willing to dance with with Calgary and, and and sign an extension. It just seems like that whole Lindholm situation may not be able to present itself to Boston like maybe we had hoped a few months prior. Just another option that might be out the window for the Bruins long term as a new number one center. Did you have any thoughts on that, or did you kind of see this coming? No, I mean, I guess my pro like my feeling towards that is. Yeah, the Bruins, like, there's only so much you can do. Like, I think they talked to Calgary. I think they had conversations. And, you know, I don't think anything made sense because if the Bruins are bringing in a salary like that and a higher-end player, it probably meant they were trading a goalie at some point, which didn't happen because they didn't find value. And, you know, neither did Winnipeg trying or, you know, at least looking into trading Connor Hellebuck. Calgary's not taking on a goalie because they already have over 8 million tied up in Jacob Markstrom and Dan Vladar. They also have a top goalie prospect in Dustin Wolf. So there wasn't a fit there. So now you're talking about trading from another spot on the roster. They don't really have the picks or prospects anyways. Like their, their best hope on Lindholm was that he didn't agree, didn't get anything done with Calgary and ends up being a free agent next summer where the Bruins will have money to spend and could simply just outbid other teams for them. Now, maybe that still happens, right? Like you're, you're referencing these reports. doesn't mean there's a deal done or, or that it will get done. Um, but yeah, ultimately if, if Elias Lindholm decides he's willing to sign an extension in Calgary and doesn't really care to test free agency, there's just not much you can do about that. Like they're just not in a position to, be able to jump in and be like, here you go. We're going to blow you away because we really want Elias Lindholm. Like they, they can't do that. They don't have the pieces. They don't have the cap space. Too many other things would, would have to happen. It's just interesting. Cause like, I know the Bruins, I think we're all on the same page. The Bruins are willing to ride coil and Zaka to start the year and see what, see how it plays out. But we, but that's still not like long-term. They still know that they have to get a, a number one center. And it's probably nobody in the system that we can, really point to it's gonna have to be external through a trade or free agency and it just even if it's like through free agency it's just like how many number one centers are available next year if if like Lindholm signs it's like who do you really have to choose from so long term it's it's like yeah like Coyle and Zaka for now go for it but it's still like that their long-term plan it's like still just like whoever's available in the market (laughs) is that like what they're gonna banking on you know sorry Bridge I know you had a thought on that 
I was just going to say, I think that we've, uh, there's no big moves left before the season to be had for the Bruins just because of their cap situation. And um, we've seen them make all those little moves and they're, they're going to roll with hoping that one of those um, risks that they took minimal risks, but just risks on players that maybe hadn't panned out other places works out for them. And, you know, the, they don't really have any way to make one of those bigger moves at this point. Right. But that's why I'm even kind of asking about like even beyond this year, like next year, yeah. like that's kind of what I'm getting at, you know? Yeah. I mean, another potential option is like, if you're willing to take on someone else's bigger contract, like there could be a center out there who signed long-term right now, but ends up being available via trade. You just have to be willing to take on that contract. And like one guy I'm thinking of is Tomas Hurdle, who the Bruins have been linked to in the past just signed a long-term extension with the Sharks last year. And yet this summer, his name popped up a couple times, one year into that extension. I think it was an eight-year extension. And it's like, yeah, I don't know. Like if things aren't going well in San Jose, is he available? Like, do they decide, you know what? Hey, he's approaching his thirties. Us having him locked up might actually not be the best thing for us going forward. Let's get what we can for him. And, actually embrace a rebuild which the sharks have been doing this weird thing where like for whatever reason they don't want to tear it down and rebuild but they've just sucked for four years now so it's like you probably should have at some point um but like yeah like some something like that where it's like yeah you don't have the freedom to sign the guy on your terms because he already has his contract but something like that could pop up well, thank you for the uh, for the the, the impromptu um, opinions there, guys. I just saw that, and I, I just know it's something we've been talking about all all summer. And again, yeah, not so much for this October, but maybe for the spring or next season. It's like I just feel like the Bruins are kind of at the mercy of, okay, when we get cap space, who's available? And 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 but you just mentioned Scott, like maybe there are other circumstances where somebody's already signed long term and they end up they end up getting traded. Um, all right. Well, we're over an hour 20 into this guy. So if you have any final thoughts, we're probably good to wrap this one up. All good. All right. Thank you all for listening. We'll talk to you very soon.